I always think of when I'm trying to find some of these smaller books in the Old Testament, Zephaniah is one of the minor prophets. That doesn't mean he wasn't as important as the other ones. It just means that he's, his book is shorter. Um, what I typically do when I'm trying to find something like, like Zephaniah in particular, uh, if you can place it, it's easy for me to find Zechariah, and that'll be a confusion. Zechariah is the next to the last book in the, in the Old Testament, right before Malachi, or if you're from Italy, it's Malachi, okay? But um, uh, Malachi, Zechariah, there's one book, and I forget one, what it is, back left, and then Zephaniah. So you can do that, or you can do the really smart way, and just look in your table of contents and find it. I think it's on page 738 in my Bible. So uh, find Zephaniah, not Zechariah, but Zephaniah, and we're going to talk about this issue today. Now, what we're going to deal with here is uh, what, what Stella was picking on me about. Are you yet enjoying a little summer recreation? We're going to take a look today and in this series at that kind of misunderstood word uh, and what God says to do about what I would call not recreation, but we're going to pronounce it differently. We're going to call it recreation because that's what God is about here. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to encourage you to do something with me over the next eight or ten weeks or so. This will be really easy, I think, and I want, want us to do it together, and every week we're going to recite this together, okay? So I want you to work on, and just for the sake of doing it together, and because um, this is how I learned it, I want you to use the New International Version. So for those of you who've got a problem with New International, just put up with me for, for a few weeks on this, okay? We're going to memorize together one verse of Scripture over this whole time. So it's not like we're going to do one every week. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I put the reference in the first paragraph of your outline. If anyone, who is, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, I think we can all do that together, okay? So we'll start each time, each week, with that passage, because we're going to talk about how the Lord is recreating us uh, through this series that we start today in, with the prophet Zephaniah. Now, Rhonda was fishing with her brother. I'm making this story up, by, by the way. But it's a fishing story. And we're talking about recreation, right? Fishing with her brother, and they're in two, two parts of the pond, and, um, uh, and um, there, there are striper everywhere around. And after about an hour, um, she goes to her brother to see if he's caught anything, and he tells her that he'd caught a 70-pound striper, but he threw it back. Um, she couldn't quite believe the story. And uh, so he, he asked her what she had caught. And uh, she told him uh, that she'd caught a Coleman lantern that someone must have dropped in the pond last fall, and it was still lit. <laughs> well, Ken was really upset about that, and he, he accused her of lying. So she told him, okay, I'll tell you what. If you'll take 60 pounds off your striper, I'll blow out my lantern. Okay, all right. She's hating being in Sunday school with me, I think. Uh, now, Roger, I could have made that story about you, I guess, couldn't I? Because uh, you've got a lot of fishing stories to tell. It does have a bunch of fish. Yeah. 
It does. Now, by the way, if you think that shirt has a thousand fish on it, I'm going to tell you, that tells me something about how you might exaggerate another fishing story. <laughs> All right. Now, let's talk about this issue of recreation that we're going to call recreation. All right. Now, the Bible in brief could be told like this, okay? Kind of three points to it, all right? Uh, literally, the Bible begins, and, and I've just started working back through the book of Genesis in my, in my uh, quiet time each morning. So I've just read back through this again. But the Bible begins with the story of God creating the world and everything in it, the universe. He sets it all in place. I had a conversation with somebody yesterday. Uh, Ellie, was that you and me talking about, about um, uh, the whole creation issue and how science and creationism are actually beginning to sync up a little more in your mind, and I think in, in a lot of people's minds. But the truth is not the how, it's the who. Um, Travis is a scientist, and I know you, you're dealing with all this stuff. The truth is that the Bible tells us the who of creation, not as much about the how, and, I, and I'm okay with that. So the Bible begins with, the creation of the world and all that's in it. By chapter 2, he has created mankind. By chapter 3, man has messed it all up. Isn't that interesting? The rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible from 3.15 or so forward is God recreating. You hear me? Everything we study in here is about God's recreating His creation, humanity, setting things right. Now, as the history of God's people unfolds, He raises up prophets to tell us where we've gotten off track. Their messages included not only challenges to the people of their day, but glimpses into the future time of the Messiah, especially with, with folks like Zephaniah. He was looking forward to the coming of Jesus. What we might call, and what they might have called, the era of recreation. When, he really, when God really gets into full swing of recreating, um, uh, making all things new. One of those prophets was our new friend Zephaniah. Uh, his writings are part of the Old Testament grouping of 12 books that we call the Minor Prophets. And I, as I mentioned before, um, why we kind of call them that. Now, like other prophets, Zephaniah was guided by the Spirit of God as he spoke. Uh, you might put a reference, 2 Peter 1.21 um, Peter is going to say, I think it's interesting that Peter comments on this, but he says, you know what, these guys didn't just make this up, but they recorded, they wrote as the Spirit of God um, moved them to write. Well, Zephaniah would be one that falls into that. Now, the very first, uh, if, you wanna, if you're, you're over there uh, yet, let's go ahead and turn to Zephaniah 1.1. It's going to put his life in a historical perspective. What does it tell us about him in 1-1? One, one? Zephaniah 1-1. One, one. What do we learn? Word of the Lord came to him. 
He was the great, great grandson of King Hezekiah. Now, King Hezekiah um, reigned from 727 to about 698 BC in the south. Um, he then, that kind of puts it, helps us with the historical perspective. Zephaniah is going to come uh, into his ministry during the 7th century or then during the 600s BC. Uh, he was a contemporary of Jeremiah and Nahum. And he delivered the Lord's message to the southern kingdom of Judah during the reign of good King Josiah. Now, what I want you to know, because we'll talk about Josiah some as we go through this, the first part of this series. By the way, later on, we're going to link Zephaniah to the book of Romans. We'll transition over to the book of Romans and talk about the similarities and how, how uh, Romans kind of borrows from Zephaniah in, in some way. But uh, when you say that name, Josiah, what I want you to say is add the word good because he was one of the great kings of the southern kingdom. Good King Josiah. Do you remember anything about him? He was a boy king. He actually became king when he was like eight. He threw out a lot of the Asherah poles. He got rid of all that stuff. You know, I don't remember about his grandmother. That's something I need to look up. Well, if you remember how desperately wicked things were, he really did all that he could to set things right and made great decisions throughout his, his kingly reign, um, including, by the way, during his reign, they found the, they found the books of the law that they'd kind of lost. And they began to read them and made a lot of sweeping changes based on that. Well... He was working, Zephaniah would work. Uh, by the way, you can read 2 Kings 22 and it'll tell you about how they found the books of the law that had been lost. Zephaniah's efforts working in tandem with those of this good King Josiah were attempts to turn the nation back to God and they become kind of the last ray of hope before Judah plunges into really a spiritual freefall. So that's the context that this little book is going to begin in. And it's going to begin with kind of a sweeping judgment here in verse 1 and 2 and 3. And it's going to go on from there. So I'm going to ask Bob, if you don't mind, we're going to start with verse 4. And if you would please read 4, 5, and 6. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal and worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roof, Okay, now, Steve Blair, can I get you to turn to a couple things? If, would you take those two verses in Exodus there? Exodus 6, 6 and 3, 20. We'll get those in just a minute. John, I'm going to pick on you and ask you if you would go to Matthew 13. And in three or four minutes here, we're going to need Matthew 13 to read 20 through 22. That's uh, Jesus' teaching there. Okay, now, um, it's interesting. He uses a metaphor here that God is going to stretch out his hand. Now, we've heard that before. In fact, we hear it a lot in the Old Testament. That God will stretch out his hand. We hear that his arm is powerful and that he's going to stretch out his hand. Now, we like it when God stretches out his hand on our behalf 
on their behalf. Uh, Steve, start with 6.6, 6, if you would, and then jump back to 3.20 from the book of Exodus. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and a mighty act of Okay. He's stretching out his hand to work against Egypt. All right, 320, what does it say? So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. Okay, God is going to stretch out his hand. He's promising... Uh, he's saying this to Moses. Moses will, Moses will say it to the people. God is going to stretch out his hand and work for them against Egypt. Now look back at Zephaniah 1.4. Who's he stretching out his hand against now? If previously he had stretched out his hand for them, now he's going to be working against them. I wouldn't want to be in that place, would you? I'll say the most political thing I'm going to say today. In some ways, it sometimes feels like we're experiencing that today. This is not, you don't want to be on the wrong side of this issue. He says, I'm going to stretch out my hand now against Judah. By the way, Judah was um, kind of the catch-all name for the southern kingdom. Uh, where where um, Zephaniah was working, over which um, good King Josiah presided. I'm going to stretch out my hand, not for you, but now against you. Now, uh, in, in the second half of that fourth verse, it mentions a couple things that I probably ought to unpack a little bit. Um, it talks about the prophets of Baal, now, Baal was a kind of a collection of uh, fertility gods that were particularly uh, popular during the time of uh, Ahab and Jezebel, if you remember them. Uh, they, they, Ahab kind of brought that into the northern kingdom, and, um, and it kind of proliferated there. Um, certainly, it was the, the, uh, the prophets of Baal, um, 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 which Elijah ended up in the contest with, if you remember that, at Mount Carmel. You remember that story? Um, uh, now, these were fertility gods, so that they believed, they began, the, the surrounding peoples, and some of the Israelites began to believe, and some of the, even some in the southern king, kingdom of Judah, began to believe that, that these gods had control over, over fertility in crops, in animals, and even in humans. What's the problem here? First of all, we know, you and I know, that the Lord God kind of has control over all of those things and everything else. And secondly, for us to reach out to or, or lift our voice to Another God, and I'm going to say small g God. The reason there's that distinction is because if you remember, God called himself by the name when he meets with Moses. He calls himself by the name I am, implying that the others are not. How ludicrous 
for the people of God to begin to cry out to others who they thought could help them. And he uses a term here in the fourth verse that is used very sparingly in the Old Testament. It's another place that it's used is in uh, 2 Kings 23, verse 5. But it talks about idolatrous priests. That should be a, um, uh, a contradiction in terms. Okay, so now God is, he says, I'm going to stretch out my hand. And when, when they first hear that, they're going to think, oh, this is good. But no, I'm going, to, yeah, yeah. I'm going to stretch out my hand, but you may not like it. All right, so the prophet here in verse 5, if you'll move on to verse 5, is talking about those who openly worship another. Now, it's talking about worshiping the heavenly hosts. In other words, the idea is, uh, is they're, they're bowing down to the stars as a representation of some of these gods. But where are they doing it is the problem. On a rooftop. You see that? The issue here is that they are openly worshiping other gods. Openly worshiping another. Or in the second part, look, continue to look at verse, verse 5 there. Those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by, and depending on what translation you've got, it should probably say Moloch there, which was another uh, collection of gods that, they, that they, uh, uh, they began to worship, that they inherited from the people around them. So the idea here is openly on the rooftops, when it says bow down here, that's a word that means, it's literally translated worship in most of the Old Testament. To prostrate yourself. And the idea is they're bowing down to gods who are not. And they're doing it out in the open. Or they decided they want the best of both worlds. So they'll go, um, they'll go to the temple or they'll um, maybe recite the Shema daily, as, as uh, Exodus 6, 4 tells them to do. But they will also bow down to other gods as well. Literally, they will not, either they'll worship another or they'll serve God in the, the word that I just want you to put there in quotes, and, serving God and. They want the best of both worlds. I want to have all the bases covered. Um, Rhonda used to work with a person who um, would wear around her neck a, a Star of David, a cross, and a Buddha. <laughs> Am I right? Kind of wanted all the bases covered. Let's, you know, maybe these guys are right. God and, Right? Now, what's the, is that just an ancient philosophy we're dealing with that Zephaniah is dealing with here? It's really popular, isn't it? This is, don't shoot me, this is Oprahism. <laughs> it is. And I'm not saying just because of her. She just represents a bunch of people, right? God and. I want to cover all the bases. Now, what's the problem with this? 
Well, you and I know what the problem is. Again, there is only one good, loving, heavenly God. There is not another. And the Bible tells me, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that his only represent, representative is his son, who was like him in every way, and fleshed him out, John 1 says. To go any other direction, or to decide, you know, I need Christianity and I need my relationship with God and is a real philosophical problem in our day. It's not new, is it? Zephaniah encountered these same kind of people. Now, uh, there are other people here who have not just blended their worship. Look at verse 6. They've not just blended their worship with other gods. They've just completely lost interest. They had a former relationship with God, but now their passion is gone. Literally, it, these would be the people who would say uh, in, in uh, Aramaic or in Hebrew, been there, done that. Yeah, I tried that. John, read from Matthew 13, will you? 20 to 22. Jesus talks about sowing the seed. And he says there are some who don't allow the seed enough nurture to grow. And they fall away. Uh, the Bible is going to say here that the pressures of life, other, other involvements, other commitments, just kind of phase that out, kind of choke that out. The word choked is used in here in some, in some translations. And the idea here is that, that um, a person who formerly was maybe for a while kind of passionate about God has become not so much, kind of been there, done that. I'm kind of working it out on my own now. So do you catch the three positions here? There are people that he's speaking to who are openly worshiping other gods. There are others who have decided, you know what, I'm going to cover all the bases and worship God and. And then there are those who have said, you know, I've kind of tried that. I'm just going to be on my own. I may decide to just carry a rabbit's foot. Maybe that'll be my religion. By the way, Travis, you've got to be of a certain age to know what a rabbit's foot means. Do you know that? It's a luck charm, okay? Luck charm, okay. All right, so the, the idea is here, I've got to ask myself a question here as we start this study. Am I guilty of really, in my mind, whether I would say it or not, am I guilty of serving God and? Am I guilty of following Jesus and? Really dangerous position to be in, but we can drift into it. Okay, now, let's go down. We're going to skip a few verses here, and I want us to go to verse 14. 
And we're going to talk, he's going to invoke here this idea of the day of the Lord. I'm going to do some of the most important teaching that I've ever done in the next 10 minutes. So hang with me if you can. Uh, because we're going to talk about the day of the Lord and the wrath of God and what that means. Bob, would you mind to read verse 14, 15, and Right there. Okay, now, this idea of the day of the Lord is, the, uh, is a concept here of God's judgment, God's righteous judgment on everyone. All right? Now, it's not a really pleasant discussion, uh, but it's interesting that many of the Old Testament prophets use this same term. So the Holy Spirit who spoke to one was also speaking to another one, and another one, and another one, and another one about this same issue. The day of the Lord is coming, he says. And for you and me, if we're prepared for it, it will be a day that we will look forward to. For others, it will not be so much. And like we said with the, the hand of the Lord that was outstretched back in, in, the verse, in, in Exodus, and now um, uh, Zephaniah gives us a different idea, um, the Lord's judgment here, they're going to assume that this judgment is on everybody else. So the word you need to put in your blank there is others. Their assumption is that this day of the Lord is uh, they're assuming that this day is coming, but it's only for everybody else. It's only for others. So what I've got to ask you about, and uh, let me get some... Ellie, you mind to read? Go to the passage in Revelation that I put down there, uh, 6, 16, and 17. We're going to talk, because we'll see how the Bible syncs up here. Uh, we'll see that in just a minute. What comes to mind with you when you think of the wrath of God? Judgment, right? Now, un unfortunately, I think often we think of God kind of being ticked. That's a human. That's, we're kind of uh, making him anthropomorphic here. But I don't think that's the case. And I, I want to talk about th that for just a minute. Listen to what it says about when Jesus returns. The great day of Jesus' wrath has come. It says, asking the rocks to hide me from it. Now, does it seem to you like it has to me through much of my life that the wrath of God and the love of God are kind of inconsistent? In fact, if you're like me, you've encountered somebody who said, you know, I can really get interested in the God of the New Testament, but I'm not really careful of the God of the Old Testament. And we're seeing it right here in Zephaniah. What I've got to do is be is work on this issue of whether or not the love of God and the wrath of God are harmonized. Let me share with you just a couple of things to think about here. How do we reconcile God's wrath with his love? Does God have a dark side that's opposed to his love and mercy? Well, we can't 
deal with this apparent contradiction by sweeping aside God's wrath as though it were non-existent or unimportant. Um, he says, even in the book of Romans, God is going to deal with godlessness and wickedness in his divine wrath. What I've got to deal with here at the beginning is that God's wrath is directed toward, okay, you ready? Wickedness, not toward people. It's directed toward wickedness. Action, activity, philosophy, theology, not people. It's directed at the behaviors of human sinners as they violate each other and pillage God's creation. It is not the selfish frustration or temper of someone who's self-obsessed and irate with anyone who gets in the way of their own self-actualization or self-fulfillment. It is not godly road rage. Have you been, Ron and I have seen this a little bit lately where you just wonder what's going to happen here because two people will be on the highway getting mad at each other. It's like you want to keep a wide, wide berth. When I think of the wrath of God, I think sometimes I think God has got some road rage he's dealing with here. It couldn't be farther from the truth. Could not be farther from the truth. This is the wrath that says, what are you doing to yourself? Teresa, you deal with it every day, don't you? God is angered by what we're doing to ourselves. We've got three little grandchildren that are coming to stay with us in a couple of weeks. So two weeks from today, I will have less hair than I have now. Um, they're going to leave them with us for a weekend. They're going to take a little vacation. and um, um, So anyway, that'll be a fun weekend. Um, but have we told you we got a fourth coming? Have I not told you that? We just kind of found out in May. But yeah, um, um, yeah, got a fourth one coming. In December, Christmas will be fun. But um, anyway, we've you know I don't know if you around your children, around your grandchildren. You ever tell one of the kids, "Do not get out in that street." <laughs> Only if you want them out in the street, Jack. Because it's interesting, you know that there's danger out there, and you say, "Don't do that." Have you ever experienced, as I have, your blood absolutely boiling when they defy that command and go out in the middle of the street? Is it because you all of a sudden hate them? It's because you love them. Isn't it? Isn't it your holy love that runs out in the middle of that street, grabs them up short, and you bring them to the curb before you let them have it. <laughs> I told you. And it may be. <laughs> I don't remember mom ever doing this with tears in her eyes, but I can imagine that happening. With tears in your eyes saying, I love you. I don't want you to be hurt. And what you were doing was about to destroy you. That's the wrath of God. He didn't hate you. He didn't hate the people in Zephaniah. He just knew that the logical conclusion of what the pattern they were on was going to literally destroy their lives. 
And so he says, I love you too much to let you continue to do this. My hand is getting ready to be outstretched. And there will be a day. The holy wrath of God. His wrath is in place here. Actually, because he loves us. Listen to Exodus 34. This is from the Old Testament. The compassionate and gracious God is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, but not leaving the guilty unpunished. It's the teenage son who comes in and obviously has been drinking and driving and you don't allow him to drive for the next month. And you're angry. Why are you angry? Because you know he could hurt himself or somebody else or both. Do you not love him? No. In fact, it's your love that motivates you to punish. Can we see the wrath of God in this context? Let me, let me kind of close this out because I know we're running out of time. There are three words used... Uh, it, there's a glimmer of hope that, that, that dawns in chapter 2. And I want you just to read verse 3 with me. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Let me give you three words that are used here. In 2 verse 3. This is God's prescription through the prophet for a world gone wrong. First of all, the word seek. He uses it three times in one verse. It's the idea here of taking necessary corrective steps. Change your route. Rhonda and I were, were in places where we hadn't been before, and I was using GPS, which I have a love-hate relationship with my GPS, uh, the, the, the big baritone guy that talks to me on there. I have a love-hate relationship with him. He occasionally will say, you are over the speed limit. And I'll say, yes, and your mother dresses you funny. I say it out loud, don't I? <laughs> but occasionally, I will go contrary to his direction. And he will say, route recalculation. Don't you know that God wants you to recalculate your route sometimes? He did for these people in Zephaniah 1. And he says it here in Zephaniah 2. The second word is humble. It's used twice in this one verse. It's the idea that I need to realize my utter dependence on the Lord for help and salvation and direction. I can't do this on my own. I can't live this life on my own. I can't, uh, as, as Frank Sinatra saying, I can't do it my way and expect to work for it to work out for me. I've got to depend on him. And that requires humility. Being dependent on him. The third word is flee. It's implied here. In verse 3, it's the idea that I need to not run. It's the idea perhaps you'll be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. They thought, and some of those thought in that day, if we'll run away from him, we, we won't encounter that. The truth is, what he's asking you to do is not run away from him, but run toward him. Run toward him. To flee into his loving arms. 
I can't escape by running away from him. I need to run to him. There's an interesting verse. It's actually written by Moses in the 90th Psalm. You know, we think David wrote all the Psalms. He didn't write all of them. He wrote most of them. In the 90th Psalm, if you want to read it later on today, you can. But let me just quote one phrase from it that we're going to use here. Uh, David says, I'm sorry, Moses says, I just, you know, goofed up my own thought here. Moses says, teach me to number my days that I might present to you a heart of wisdom. Teach me to number my days that I might present to you a heart of wisdom. I think the key to recreation is found in two things. And they both include this thought of seeing every day as a gift from God to us, but to be used for Him. First, I think I've got to look at the truth that every day is His, not mine. He entrusts them to me. 24 hours. Every day is His. The other reference I placed at the bottom of your page talks about uh, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. A lot of times we think that's only talking about Sunday. This is not His only day. Every day that I'm allowed to wake up is His day. So secondly then, first of all, I need to trust each day as His Treat each day as his. And secondly, I need to do what needs to be done today and say what needs to be said today. Teach me to number my days and I'll present to you a heart of wisdom. I think the key to this is recognizing that each of these days is his and then using that day. Saying the things that need to be said. Doing the things that need to be done today. Okay, we'll pick up right there. We'll be in chapter 3 next week, actually, in Zephaniah, now that you know where to find it. And I will see you next Sunday. Have a great weekend.